I don't know whether you saw uh, last Sunday in the Sunday Star Times, Michael Laws wrote a column and uh, he is a media commentator in New Zealand and he has a little three-year-old daughter Lucy who is battling leukemia at the moment at Starship and he's been writing this column for the Sunday Star Times from Lucy's bedside and uh, if you've read much of Michael Laws, listened to much of him, he's a pretty outspoken critic, particularly some of his harshest uh, criticisms have been reserved for the, op uh, for the exclusive brethren and he finds then himself at Starship by his daughter's bedside battling for her life in the same ward as a little boy Oliver who is part of an exclusive brethren family. And so he starts talking to this family and it's, there's a fascinating um, quote from him uh, in, his, in his column about this. He says, Whatever their political naivety, the brethren wrap their church around little Oliver. They're also generous in their prayers for Lucy and the greeting of her worldly parents. In turn, I'm humbled by their humility and any cynical reserve departs. I offer prayers for Oliver and talk openly of a time when the corridors will echo with the laughter of our two precious kids at play. Why do barriers matter at such times? And you think, man, what, what is it about prayer that can generate that kind of response, that, that the love of a family and prayer can just break down all the cynicism, this reserve, it's not arguments, it's not logic, it's just people wrapping their arms around one another and upholding each other and actually praying for each other. It's this mysterious phenomenon, prayer. Uh, why does it have such an unbelievable power in the life of the church? I want to take you to a passage this morning where we see prayer operating and uh, maybe get a bit of a glimpse into how it works and why it works and why it has such profound value for us. It's the passage that, that Taryn read out and it comes from a section in the book of Acts where we're rewinding a little bit from, from last week. If you remember last week we were up in Antioch uh, further north and the church had expanded up there but to come back a few steps we're back now in Acts chapter 4 back in Jerusalem and uh, what's happened in the run-up to this passage we're going to look at today is that Peter and John, two of the apostles, two of the leaders uh, in, the, in the early church had been out among the temple area and had performed this miracle of healing for a lame man that restored his strength. And so this guy is now uh, standing up, walking around, running around, and telling everybody that he's been healed by these two guys who are followers of Jesus. And this doesn't sit particularly well with the Jewish authorities because they have just uh, been instrumental in putting Jesus to death. So they're not too fussed about a guy now running around on the streets of Jerusalem telling everyone he's been healed in the name of Jesus. It doesn't look good. And so they haul Peter and John before the, um, the council, essentially the Jewish court system, before the high priest, and they uh, command them not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. They issue essentially a decree telling these people, you may not publicly proclaim any further anything to do with Jesus whatsoever. You're banned. You can only talk about it privately in your homes. And so Peter and John go back to the believers with what could essentially be the end of the movement um, right in front of them, this decree that's been made which could basically stifle everything they're doing because in the very earliest days they're now prohibited from essentially spreading it any further. And they come back to the believers and here's where we pick it up, verse 23 of Acts 4. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. And stop there for a second. If you just put yourselves in the shoes of these people for a minute, if you were these disciples, Peter and John coming back and breaking the news that basically things could be over, we've been told that we can no longer talk publicly about Jesus, what would your first response have been in that situation? 
Possibly, I imagine, some of them would have launched some kind of an appeal in the court system. Some of them would have thought, well, stuff this. We're just going to go out and talk about Jesus anyway. Some of them would have thought, let's shift strategy maybe. Let's go out to some of the other villages around Jerusalem where there's not going to be so much heat on us. And it's amazing the way in this passage that the instinctive reaction of the church is to pray. You notice that? It's even before they talk about it with each other, even before they plan and strategize, instinctively they pray. They begin by talking to God. You know, and I've got to tell you, when I think about this, I think about what I would have done. Probably my, my default setting tends to be worry. That's what I'll do. I'm very good at worrying about things. I'll do, you know, the worry to prayer ratio is probably 10 to 1 at least. And so I'll worry and I'll stew about something and I'll stress about something and way down the track, you know, I'll actually think to pray about it. Uh, I don't know what your default setting is when things come up, you know, when situations arise that are tough, that are challenging, you know, whether it's financial situations, whether it's health whether it's a death in the family, the kinds of things that we've been talking about this morning. How do you react? What's your default response? And you think, what if we were able to commit together that as a church and as individuals, our default response would be prayer? That'd be pretty powerful. That instinctively, it was the most natural thing for us that whenever situations emerge, good or bad, that we, it is so natural for us to immediately turn to God and start talking to Him about the situation, whether it's praising him for the good, whether it's coming before him with our needs and asking him for help through the bad, that would be a people for whom prayer was natural and instinctive. Now imagine how this would work in your life group. You're sitting around talking, and as needs come up, as people share things, as you're aware of someone's going through a really rough time this week, that someone would just say, hey, let's pray. And you don't even have to leave it till the prayer time right at the end of the message at the end of the group. You can just kick in with it. You know, imagine, perish the thought, if we actually did this socially, as we're hanging out with other followers of Christ, our brothers and sisters, that, you know, when, when, when the conversation turns in a certain direction and there's just stuff that's going on, you know, or maybe the conversation becomes unhealthy, that one of us would have the guts to clench our fists and grit our teeth and just push through the awkward barrier and just say, maybe we should pray about this. We don't do it because it's awkward. We feel stupid. But in the big scheme of things, what's more important? Our social comfort or the right response of coming to God in prayer rather than just talking and worrying about situations? One of the things I'd love to see Shaw become is a, a praying church where it's just our default response, spontaneously if need be, instinctively. It would be a praying church. And then you notice as these believers pray, what they pray. Have a look at this. Verse 24, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. It's a bit of a strange start, really. I mean, imagine if, if, if let's assume that you were spiritual enough to actually pray in the situation. How would your prayer start? Probably something like, God, help me. You know, big bad Caiaphas is, is after me. I'm in trouble. Help, please. And that's not, no problem with those prayers. You see the prayer of help and, and woe is me a lot in the Psalms. But this is not what they pray here. What happens is they begin with centering themselves on God. And they begin by actually acknowledging God's sovereignty and His glory and His majesty. Because especially in our culture and our society, we are conditioned to think and act constantly as consumers. 
We are conditioned to think and act constantly in an egocentric way, in a self-centered way, and so instinctively that's what we'll do when we pray. We'll come to prayer with a shopping list. We'll come to prayer with ourselves right in the middle of the prayer. And while it's totally legitimate that our needs and desires and so on drive us to pray, it's a healthy thing when we do pray to begin by centering ourselves on God and to begin theocentrically, God-centeredly in prayer to come before him and acknowledge who he is. And even though we might say to God, God, it's my own uh, emotions, it's, the, it's the, the dire circumstances that I'm in that are, that are driving me to pray, but I still want to acknowledge that the most important thing here is not my needs and not even this situation, it's your glory. It's your name and it's your sovereignty. That's what I want to ground myself on. That's what I want this prayer to emerge from a centering on God and His person and His sovereignty. And when that happens, when we take that time to really orientate ourselves the right way in prayer, posture ourselves towards God, not towards ourselves, what happens is our perspective starts to shift. It's fascinating the way this happens. You see it happening right here in the disciples' prayer. Look in verse 25. They say, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Now this in a way seems a little bit random. It's a quote from Psalm 2. You've got time later on this afternoon, you can go back and read Psalm 2. And the idea there is it's a picture of these nations coming against Israel. These foreign peoples attacking God's chosen people. And so by attacking Israel, they are actually attacking God himself. By attacking God's anointed, the king of Israel, they're actually standing against God himself. And in response, God issues this almost mocking, um, sarcastic response to the nations, to these kings and rulers saying, who do you think you are? How on earth do you think you're going to stand against the Lord and against his anointed representative? A few years ago, I went and saw uh, Handel's Messiah performed in, in New York. And this is the line, these are the phrases that that starts with before they get to the Hallelujah Chorus. They start with Psalm 2. And you, and you get this, uh, there's four singers, and I think it's the, the guy that starts, I think he's a tenor, and he just comes out with these lines and the voice, it's just this intensity to it and almost a tone of rage. You know, why do the nations tremble? You know, it's that kind, you almost just sit back in your seats, like what's that, what's going on? But he captures the spirit of Psalm 2. It's this piercing challenge to the nation. Who do you think you are standing against the Lord, coming against his chosen people? And so why is that plonked in the middle of this, this prayer? Remember, this is a prayer. These believers are praying. They're reciting this scripture in the context of their prayer. Look what they say next, verse 27. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. You see what's starting, to, what's starting to happen here? They're now telling the story of Jesus' crucifixion, and they're beginning to connect Psalm 2 to the story that's happening right in front of them, to the recent events of their own time. And they're starting to see the way in which the situation they're in is not just about Peter and John, it's not just about Caiaphas. It's not just about this legal decree that they can't speak about Jesus in Jerusalem. Suddenly they realize they're part of a much bigger story here. 
Now, part of a story that stretches back to Psalm 2, and even further back than that, they're suddenly part of this great cosmic drama that's going on of God versus the peoples of the earth. This great battle between God and human authorities where God is working out his plan on planet earth. He's pushing forward this redemptive story, this great rescue plan for humanity. And there are these feeble attempts from time to time from rulers and kings and nations and authorities on the earth to try and stand against that. And time and time again, God thwarts their plans. They come to nothing and the great drama of salvation marches on. And you see the way here. And there's some pretty specific links that these believers are connecting Psalm 2, the big story, to their own situation. You see in Psalm 2, the nations become, in Acts 4, the Gentiles. You see the peoples become the people of Israel. In the next sentence, the kings of the earth now become Herod and Pontius Pilate. And God's anointed one in Psalm 2, who was the king of Israel, now becomes Jesus. And so this immediate situation is connected to a much greater story. And the perspective of these disciples is shifting to see that this isn't just about us. This is part of what God has been doing throughout history. And friends, this is what happens when you pray, as your perspective starts to shift. And you start to see the situation that's in front of you in the context of this great redemptive drama that's going on. And so as we're praying for this family in that hospital room yesterday morning, and the immediate situation is the tragedy and the devastation of a life cut tragically short, a baby that failed to live out any of its days, as we pray, God starts to shift our perspective and we start to realize this is not just about what's going on in this hospital room right now. This is about a much bigger narrative, a much bigger story that is going on about God standing against all the forces of evil and darkness, including the power of death itself. And Paul describes death in 1 Corinthians 15 as the final enemy, the last enemy to be defeated, that as the kingdom is ushered in, there is one enemy that remains, and God is moving forward to that day when finally death itself will have been defeated. And it's already had the death knell put in it on the cross so that Paul can write, where death is your victory. Where death is your sting, because the power of death is sin, and sin has been defeated on the cross. And that victory gives us the assurance that one day we will see a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no more tears or crying or mourning or pain or death, because the old order of things will have passed away and the new will be here. And you start through prayer to place this situation in the context of that story. And the whole perspective starts to change. And as you do that, then we are enabled to actually pray more in line with God's will. That we're praying for this family and we're praying for this little baby, but we're praying for more than that because we're seeing more than that. We're seeing God doing more than that in this situation. Have a look at what the believers end up praying in this verse, in, these, in this passage, when they finally get around to talking about the situation they're in. Verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats, that's uh, the, the rulers that they're in front of, and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. See, what these believers are praying 
is for the kingdom of God to come in the midst of this situation. It's not this defeated prayer anymore. It's, they could have prayed a hopeless and lost prayer, a woe is me type prayer, but they're seeing that it's not about that. It's about what God's doing in history, and so their prayer has boldness. Their prayer has confidence that God is in control, and they're able to pray, God, we want to see your kingdom coming in the midst of this situation. I think I remember um, the first prayer. I think I remember the first prayer that I ever prayed. I was staying with my cousins down in Bulls, wonderful place, and uh, I must have had, I can't even remember the circumstances leading up to it, I must have had some fight with them or something because I ended up running out of the house and down the road, they had a playground uh, a few metres away, and I went and sat down on this playground and recited to myself as much of the Lord's Prayer as I could remember. That's all I knew, and, and looking back, there was no relationship there at all, it was just words, that's the only thing I knew, and I only got about as far as um, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, I think was about as much as I knew, and I'd just recite that over and over again, it was about as best as I could do. And as I look back now, I think, man, without even realizing it, I stumbled across some of the most powerful words that I could actually have prayed. You know, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, there were three profound words in there that really formed the foundation of everything we could ever ask of God. Thy kingdom come. And it's not a cliche. It's not just a glib throwaway line. It's a serious prayer for the coming of the kingdom in our circumstances. This is why my favorite theologian, Stanley Grins, who I will spend my days in heaven polishing his shoes, uh, says this. He calls prayer the cry for the kingdom. He says, as we pray, we are able to perceive the presence of the kingdom in all areas of life. As we pray, we become the instruments of the Spirit in opening the situations we face to receive the inbreaking of God's rule in the present. And through prayer, we move history toward that day when the kingdom will arrive in its fullness and God's work in the world will reach its final goal. See, it's not wrong to pray for you know, immediate needs around us. It's not wrong to pray for your sick goldfish. It's not wrong to pray that God would give you a car park. You know, these, it's not wrong to pray that God would help you through your exams. That's all fine. But more broadly than that, we need to be a people that pray the prayer, Thy kingdom come that really call down God's divine energy through the Holy Spirit into the situations that we face and ask for the coming of the kingdom, the breaking in of God's rule and presence in the midst of the darkness that we see on earth. And so part of prayer is this imaginative process of picturing what it would look like if the kingdom came in this situation. What would it look like if the kingdom came in that hospital room yesterday? What would it look like if the kingdom came in your home? If the kingdom came into your marriage? What, what would it look like if the prayer, thy kingdom come, was answered in your school, in your workplace? What shape would that actually take? More open hearts to hear what God was saying? A greater sense of grace and love towards one another? A greater presence of the Spirit? A more diligent work ethic, maybe, in your work? Greater care among people that you know. A softening of stubborn hearts maybe in your family and a tearing down of walls that have divided people. Is that what it would look like for the kingdom 
to come. As we picture that in our minds and our imaginations are held captive by this picture of the kingdom breaking in, then we are equipped to pray in line with God's will, to pray, God, your kingdom come. And that's what these disciples are doing. They don't specifically say, thy kingdom come, but they're praying that prayer in their own situation. Because for them, God's kingdom coming looks like them being emboldened to proclaim the message about Jesus in the face of hostile authorities. It looks like God giving them the power to reject the decree that's made and carry on the good work of proclamation anyway. Now that's going to be different situation to situation. But it begins by thinking, what does God's kingdom coming look like? And then to cry for the kingdom. To cry for the coming of the kingdom as history moves forward toward that great picture in Revelation 21 and 22 of the new heaven and the new earth. That's the kingdom in its fullness, and we pray that that would, to some degree, come rushing into the present and move forward to meet us through the breaking in of God's power and love and healing and restoration in the, in, in the present moment. And so we pray for the kingdom to come, and then look at how this prayer ends in Acts 4. Verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. I wish I could promise you that this would happen every time you prayed, that your house would physically be shaken at its foundations. I, I can't do that faithfully to Scripture, but what's happening here is that these disciples have prayed for God's kingdom to come, and God's answering their prayer. And He's giving them precisely what they asked for, which is they would be the answer to this prayer for God's kingdom to come. They prayed for the boldness to proclaim the gospel message. God's filling them with the power of His Spirit to do exactly that. And friends, here's the thing. When we pray, we need to brace ourselves to be part of the answer. Don't ask God for things unless you are prepared to be a part of His answer in that situation. So many times I've found I've, I've prayed into a situation or prayed for a person and God has prompted me and said, well, what are you doing? You know, you pray for someone who's sick or hurting, and God just brings that thought into your mind. Have you called them? Have you visited them? Because if, if you're praying for me to work, how's God going to work? Isn't it through his people? Isn't it through the believing community? So we also need to have that openness that God's actually going to use me to be part of this answer. If you're praying for your friend, your family member, your colleague who doesn't know Jesus, you're praying for those people you wrote down their names on that bookmark, Mightn't God then prompt us to say, well, how are we becoming that answer? How are we participating with him, not, in, not just in praying, but in answering that prayer? And being prepared then to take the first steps. God desires to use us, his church, in answering the prayers that we pray. It's the greatest privilege imaginable. You think God didn't have to institute something like prayer, it didn't have to happen. But he did. He's, he's reached out and given us this means of communicating and this means of working with him in carrying out his will. This means of crying out to him and releasing his willingness to act in situations, releasing his divine energy into these situations, not always in the way that we think or hope or want him to act, but in the way that is according with his will. And then responding to that invitation to actually then participate in being part of the answer, being his instruments and actually fulfilling the breaking in of God's kingdom through acting with love, through acting with grace, through acting with humility towards those that we might be praying for. So as much as we are praying into these various situations, even those we've talked about this morning, we also want to be the kind of church 
that's willing to respond and not just pray but act because that's part of the outworking of the life of prayer in the church. It's our real desire, friends, to be a praying church. I really do think it's no accident we're talking about this stuff today. It's amazing the way God brings things together. <clears throat> Situations just converge. And I want to just highlight a couple of things for you on a really practical level as we, as we wrap this up today. One is that we do have at Shore a prayer network. And uh, it hasn't been really well publicized in the past, but we do have a way, and it's a way for us to mobilize people to pray quickly in a situation like yesterday um, with Odette because there really is power in prayer. Often we don't think it because we're just minded to think that everything's reduced to natural cause and effect, but there really is power in prayer. And when people pray, God moves. And so we want to have a network that enables people to submit requests for prayer and enables others to pray. So we have this uh, two streams. One is the general prayers, that if something's going on, you can submit a request or you can ask someone else to submit a request for you. And then for confidential requests, we have um, a prayer network just of the elders. And that's um, elders' prayers, or as we like to say, elder sprayers. You can spell it either way you like. Uh, at Shaw. And you can just send to that and have the assurance that uh, the elders will be the only ones that see those prayers. If you'd like to be part of that network and join up to be a prayer, you can email Debbie and she will willingly put you on that list. And I think that just looks like receiving regular prayer updates for people and possibly in an emergency situation. You can unsubscribe whenever you like. It's not some crazy spam thing. Just a, just a way of using technology, really, to become a praying movement. 